Section 4 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3, Raleigh at Court, Part 1. Before his return from Ireland, Raleigh does not seem in any special manner to have attracted Elizabeth's attention. We do not know how he first won her favor, but in those days it was not difficult for any young man to gain access to the court. Once there, a man's own wit and talents alone could gain him success. When Raleigh first appeared at court, Elizabeth was in her forty-eighth year, but she had not lost her love of admiration. She was still as much a coquette as she had ever been, and demanded as imperiously as any young beauty the entire devotion of her courtiers. There must have been much tinsel and unreality about court life when Raleigh first made acquaintance with it. The personal devotion, which seemed natural enough when paid to a young queen of twenty-five, who was surrounded by difficulties and dangers, became absurd when directed to a woman of forty-eight. But exaggeration was the fashion, and no one could hope to get on at court who was not prepared to make believe at least by his words and actions that Elizabeth occupied the first place in his heart. To the courtiers their behavior to the queen must have seemed a hollow mockery, a game which they were obliged to play, but which often became intolerably wearisome. We can well fancy how the gay young nobles who vied with one another in expressing their devotion and adoration to the queen must, when the restraint of her presence was removed, have laughed together at the airs and graces of this faded beauty. Raleigh began his court life under the powerful protection of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. This man had long held the first place in Elizabeth's favor. He was said to have been born on the same day and the same hour as the Queen. His appearance and manners were well fitted to charm her. She would have married him had she dared to marry a subject, and probably no other man ever touched her heart as he did. She called him her sweet Robin, and allowed him much influence in her counsels. She even forgave him what she regarded as an insult from any one of her courtiers, and what in him was doubly bitter, his marriage with another. Lester had twice married, first Amy Robsart, whom he was suspected of having made away with, when he thought there was a chance of marriage with the Queen. When this proved hopeless, he married the Countess of Essex in 1578. The high position in which Leicester was placed necessarily made him unpopular, and his arrogance did not tend to diminish his unpopularity. He was intensely ambitious and was willing to employ any means to gain his ends. It was said of him that he was prepared to poison or murder, in some secret manner, any man who stood in his way. Most likely he was suspected of more crimes than he actually committed, still it is true that at times people died most opportunely for his plans. He was supposed to have summoned a certain Dr. Giulio from Italy to instruct him in the art of poisoning, and his victims appeared to die of natural causes. Lester's person was handsome and commanding. His manners were polished and affable. He was no ruffian, but possessed an absolute command of temper and would have scorned to gain his ends by violence. His villainy was not that of the rough Teuton, 
but of the astute and polished Italian. Such was the man who, for some reason of his own, was now willing to further Raleigh's interests at court. In his position as favorite, Leicester seems to have feared no rival, but in council he was continually met by the stubborn opposition of Burley. William Cecil, Lord Burley, was a man of very different stamp to Leicester. He was now sixty-two years of age, and since Elizabeth's accession, first as secretary, afterwards as Lord Treasurer, he had always been her chief adviser in state affairs. He was a prudent, cautious man, who had the interests of his country sincerely at heart. He served his mistress with faithful devotion, which was never altered by the occasional harsh treatment which he met with at her hands. Elizabeth showed her wisdom very clearly in her choice of ministers, and she put great confidence in Burley. She respected his calm, deliberate wisdom. She knew that in the main she and her secretary were of one mind in matters of politics, though her own caprice and temper often made her vent her wrath on him for the expression of views which her better judgment really approved. Burley himself had a high opinion of Elizabeth's capacities. He said of her that there was never so wise a woman born, for she spake and understood all languages, knew all the states and dispositions of all princes, and especially was so expert in the knowledge of her realm and estate as no counsellor she had could tell her what she knew not before. She had also so rare gifts as when her counsellors had said all they could say, she would then frame out a wise counsel beyond theirs. There was never any great consultation, but she would be present herself to her great profit and praise. To Burley it was intensely irritating to see how strong an influence might at times be exercised over the Queen's mind by any one of the crowd of favorites who hovered round her throne. Raleigh, introduced to the court by Leicester, must from the first have been an object of suspicion to the wise old minister. But Raleigh's appearance at court excited still more bitter feelings in the mind of another man, who then occupied an important position about Elizabeth. This was Sir Christopher Hatton, now forty-two years of age, who had first of all attracted the Queen's attention by his beautiful dancing at a mask in the temple. He was the one of all Elizabeth's favorites who seems to have been most sincere in his love for her. Many of his letters to her have come down to us. They are the letters of an ardent and successful lover to his mistress, rather than those of a subject to his queen, and his love remained unchanged through his life. Elizabeth herself was extremely fond of him. Contrary to her custom with most of her favorites, she rewarded his devotion with one of the high offices of state, and appointed him Lord Chancellor. He was a conscientious and prudent man, and filled the office with credit. But no reward could make up to him for the loss of his mistress's love, and he saw himself with despair supplanted in her favor by Raleigh. Raleigh's natural gifts, his courage and strength of character, made him a formidable rival. Elizabeth was fully able to appreciate intellectual power, and a man who possessed ability as well as a fine person and an imperious manner, which grew soft and tender only to her, was sure to succeed with her. How rapid was Raleigh's progress in her favor may be judged by the fear and jealousy which he excited in Sir Christopher Hatton as early 
as October 25, 1582, not a year after Raleigh's return from Ireland. Hatton was then away from court, and he commissioned Sir Thomas Heneage to bear a letter from him to the Queen, and with the letter he sent three tokens. These were a little bucket, which signified Raleigh, whom the Queen seems to have nicknamed Water, a bodkin, and a book. Heneage had some little difficulty in finding a moment when Raleigh was not by to give the Queen the letter and the tokens. He wrote to Hatton that she took them smiling, saying, There never was such another. She tried to fix the bodkin to her hair, but it would not stay, and she gave it back to Heneage. After a while she read the letter with blushing cheeks, and seemed to hesitate whether she should be angry or well pleased. She ended by sending a long message to Hatton, veiled in the mysterious phraseology then fashionable. She said that if princes were like gods, they would suffer no element so to abound as to breed confusion, and that Pecora Compi, her nickname for Hatton, was so dear unto her that she had bounded her banks so sure as no water, Raleigh, nor floods should be able to overcome them. As a token that he need fear no drowning, she sent him a bird that brought the good tidings and the covenant that there should be no more destruction by water. But in spite of these and other reassuring messages, Heneage ends by saying, that water hath been more welcome than were fit for so cold a season. All this seems absurd when we think that Hatton was a man of forty-two and Elizabeth a woman of forty-eight, but his affection for her seems to have been sincere. Twice again, as his jealousy of Raleigh increased, did he send tokens and letters by Heneage to Elizabeth, and he is said to have died of grief for the loss of her love in 1591. There are many other striking figures about the court when Raleigh first made his appearance there, and many must have looked upon the new favorite with disgust and envy, but most men were too full of other thoughts to be much occupied with him just then. It was in that year that the Duke of Anjou came to woo Queen Elizabeth, and all the world was busy with the festivities which were got up in his honor. This Duke of Anjou was the son of Henry II of France and Catherine de' Medici, and was brother of Henry III, who then reigned over France. For some time there had been talk of a marriage between him and Elizabeth. When he came to England, the Netherlands had just elected him as their sovereign, hoping that by this means they would gain the help of the King of France in their struggle for independence and religious freedom against Philip II of Spain. Once already in 1579, the Duke of Anjou had paid a flying visit to Elizabeth. The marriage negotiations then seemed to advance favorably, and filled many of Elizabeth's courtiers and advisers with alarm. Among others, she asked the advice of Sir Philip Sidney on the point. He was the son of Sir Henry Sidney, who had shown such wisdom in the management of Irish affairs, and nephew of Leicester. He was the brightest ornament of the court, young, brave, and accomplished, a poet and a soldier, one of the first writers of pure and elegant English prose, and what was rarest in those days, a noble and single-minded man without selfish ambition or personal aims. He now dared to speak out his mind to the Queen on the subject of the French marriage. He wrote her a long letter in which in the most earnest and outspoken manner he dissuaded her from a marriage with him whom he called the son of a Jezebel of our age. 
Sidney's language was unmeasured, and fear of the wrath which it might provoke probably made him absent himself from court for a time. But he was there again on the occasion of Anjou's second visit, and took part in the jousts and tournaments which celebrated it. End of section 4